I'm delighted to be uh, speaking today about the topic that I was actually thinking about for quite some time, uh, very intensively for uh, since the, uh, let's say, April this year, or maybe March even. Um, um, and also, I'm very happy that I'm going to spend the whole entire year at Oxford Law Faculty, and hopefully we're going to spend time together in this and similar events organized by uh, Public International Law Group. So uh, the topic of today's discussion, I hope, is going to be discussion since I uh, uh, intend to deliver a quite simple presentation, uh, so we'll have more time for Q&A. But um, I'm afraid that my argument is both uh, it's quite obvious, opposite of simple. It's actually very difficult and complex. Uh, so please feel free to interrupt um, in between if you have uh, any um, clarifications that you think I can I can do in, in between of my arguments. Actually, I'm going to make a few arguments in order to sort of uh, outline, as I said uh, in the abstract of today's lecture, I'll try to outline the conceptual foundations for complicity, crime of aggression. Um, so I'm actually uh, published an article for the American Journal of International Law, um, which is coming, uh, it's going to be published very soon actually but also i've been dealing with this topic somewhat in my phd thesis um so um i'm going to speak about the uh leadership standard of the uh crime of aggression um so um i'll share a screen in a moment um just to point out where is actually uh enunciated um so it's um it makes the crime of aggression somewhat unique in that um, sort of led to a belief that the crime of aggression is a leadership crime, which is true, as we will see, but also that is sort of reserved to uh, top a uh, leadership of a state, which I don't think is true. Um, so um, there's also confusion with, with those of you who know anything about international criminal law, which I assume many of you. Um, there's this uh, control theory of the uh, International Criminal Court. Um, so before, um, after actually the leadership standard was adopted, a, the control theory emerged and sort of like made everything more confusing. Um, so this is just to introduce the uh, topic of discussion. I'll try to be more structured in my lecture, well, in the presentation. So let me just uh, for a moment share my screen. Um, right? Does it work? Works, right? Great. So this is the crime of aggression. This is the current definition as we have in the uh, Rome Statute. Um, so it's Article 8 bis. So um, this is the part actually that, that refers to the leadership clause. So it says for the purpose of the statute, crime of aggression means conduct verbs, planning, preparation, and so forth by a person in a position to exercise control or direct the political or military action of a state. Uh, also, we have modes of liability in the Rome Statute, which are found, which are to be found in Article 25. So we have here a perpetration, forms of complicity in Article 25.3, right? And then we have a new Article 25.3 bit. It says, in respect of the crime of aggression, this the provision of this article shall apply only to persons in a position effectively to exercise control over or to direct the political or military action. So it's a 
is the only crime actually that is premised by this, we call it leadership clause, uh, which essentially is the control over a direct political military action of a state. Um, okay, let me just um, quit this. Yeah, okay, back. So um, the crime of aggression is one of the uh, four core crimes. And as I said, it's the only one uh, together with genocide crimes against humanity and war crimes. And is the only crime that is the premise of this leadership clause. Uh, it was actually adopted. A, uh, it was in jurisdiction of the, uh, within jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court ever since the beginning, so from 1998 and 2002. And uh, however, the definition was adopted in 2010 and it became fully opera operational in 2017. So apart from the leadership clause, there is also one more peculiarity, which is very important, it's a state conduct element. So uh, it, again, it's the only crime that requires direct action of a state. Um, so if the state does not uh, commit an act of aggression, sort of uh, manifest violation, a little bit more than the uh, international uh, law definition, uh, customary definition of an act of aggression, um, then there is no criminal responsibility. So uh, the reasons why we have this leadership uh, clause is actually to prevent, the main reason is to prevent overcriminalization. So as you know, like the war is a huge endeavor, it involves many dozens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of people. So it would be, you know, we go beyond point of plausibility if we consider everyone responsible to sort of contribute to an act of aggression. So that's why we have this um, leadership clause. So uh, this is the introduction. Um, so today I'll try to make, um, I'll make five points, um, which will be uh, carried out in five steps. So the first point I'll, I'll make concerns the genealogy of the leadership clause. So I will explain how uh, the customary international law actually suggests that uh, private individuals are um, able to meet this leadership standard and henceforth therefore uh, be responsible for complicity of the crime of aggression. So this is contested actually in literature. And uh, that in step two, I will explain the critique of the current criteria of controller direct. In the uh, step three, I will uh, explain my argument on the definition of what does it actually mean to control a direct state action. Um, in step four, I will... Um, explain how control from control or direct or control from the leadership clause relates to the control theory of the uh, uh, International Criminal Court. And in step five, very briefly, I will set out the uh, what is it, sort of foundations for, the, for complicity. So as you know, complicity has many forms in the uh, International Criminal Law and um, uh, there are different particularities um, there, but I will not speak about it today. So I will just say how my uh, proposed interpretation of the leadership clause reflects on uh, theories of complicity in general in international criminal law. Okay, any questions? No? Great. So let's start with step one. Um, so uh, say something about the uh, the nature of the uh, the leadership nature of the crime of aggression. So ever since the first trials uh, in in Nuremberg in Tokyo, um, we considered aggression to be a leadership crime. So if you see um, Nuremberg Charter or, or to Tokyo Charter, uh, there is nothing about the leadership. However, uh, if you see the reasoning of the courts, you you will. Um, 
discern how they reflected on the leadership positions of these persons who were found uh, responsible for crimes against peace at the time that was crime of aggression. So even the J Justice Robert Jackson, which I'm sure many of you know who he is, he was the chief uh, prosecutor for the US at Nuremberg. So he actually reflected on the, um, the trial some, some years after, um, after the trials were finished. He said that uh, it never occurred to me and I'm sure it occurred to no one else at the uh, London conference where actually uh, Nuremberg Charter was adopted to speak of anyone of waging a war of aggression except topmost leaders who had some degree of control over its precipitation and policy. So it was like saying that uh, from the beginning, the crime of aggression was sort of, let's say, reserved, quote unquote, for the policymakers. Um, there are in, in the subsequent, as we, what we call subsequent trials, so the trials in the occupied zones that followed uh, Nuremberg and Tokyo trials, um, there are um, two important cases that addressed the leadership problem of the crime of aggression. So the first one is Farben case, IG Farben. So that was the uh, case brought by the United States against 24 high-level officials. Time, uh, IG Farben was a huge company, the largest industrial corporation in Europe. So they were um, officials were um, accused of essentially complicity in international crimes. So one of them was a crime of aggression. So interestingly. Uh, the uh, Nuremberg Military Tribunal, which was the tribunal where they were prosecuted, uh, said that the leadership standard already existed from the beginning. So uh, they considered that the crime of aggression is just for leaders. And they, they also importantly said that industrialists as civil society leaders, that's, my, that's the term that I'm using, it doesn't really matter, but industrialists or any, any other private individuals uh, are actually able uh, to um, be considered as leaders of a state. So that was back in uh, 40s. Then there is uh, another case, very important one, called High Command, where 14 high-ranking officers in German military, well, so just to say the four Farben defendants, they were acquitted, but not for the reasons that they did not meet the, the leadership standard. They were acquitted because mainly because of the mens rea requirement. They didn't meet that. They didn't was considered they did not have enough knowledge of the aggressive war. There's a little bit more sophistication if you read the judgment, but that's essentially what the court said. Uh, in high command case, uh, which uh, followed, uh, 14 ranking officers in the German military were prosecuted for crime of aggression. So that's that's a very important case because the, the Nuremberg Military Tribunal uh, unequivocally said that uh, crime of aggression is there only for policymakers. It actually said that uh, leaders are those individuals with the actual power to shape or influence the policy of their state. So that was the standard at the time, shape or influence, and just consider the controller direct of today. Um, so, uh, however, important thing here, the important message is that the uh, um, courts always considered the crime of aggression only to be reserved for the policymakers. So this is pretty much uncontested in the uh, in, in literature, um, but it's important just to know um, that industrialists, for instance, are um, always considered to be uh, capable uh, to meet this leadership standard and shape or influence at the time. Um, but we will see how it plays out with control and direct. 
So the first time the leadership clause uh, was uh, adopted in uh, um, in, uh, in an international law document was actually 1996 when the International Law Commission issued uh, draft codes of crimes against peace and security of mankind. So if you see article 16 there, uh, it defines the crime of aggression and prescribes responsibility to individuals who as leaders or organizers actively participate, commit the crime of aggression. Um, so there was no leadership clause. It didn't say anything about the shape or influence, but they say it's only for leaders or organizers, right? In the commentaries, uh, International Law Commission said that a, uh, those are the individuals who are um, able to decisively influence the formulation, the creation of the policy of a state. Like this policy thing, it's always there from the beginning. Policymakers, policy, International Law Commission said. Those are in the leaders of the state are individuals who are able to decisively influence the formulation of the uh, aggressive policy. Uh, and they said that this also applies, quoting Nuremberg cases, this also applies to individuals from uh, the civil society sector uh, industry. Uh, in 1997, during the negotiation uh, prior to the adoption of the Rome Statute 1998, the German delegation uh, proposed that instead of leaders or organizers, we use the term controller direct. So if you uh, remember when I showed article 8 business controller direct state till the end, and uh, from 1997, it was suggested by German delegation as a more apt criterion to capture the, the modern state dynamics. Um, so it is now in Article 25, but an Article 8 bis, as you've seen, and also in the modes of responsibility in Article 25, 3 bis. Um, as I said, the crime of aggression was within the purview of the Rome uh, statute from the very beginning. However, the definition was not uh, adopted until 2010, uh, the review conference of the Rome statute. So from 2003 to 2009, uh, even before that, but this is the important period, but 2003 and 2009, a special working group for the crime of aggression uh, met several times. And uh, in 2009, they proposed a definition which was eventually adopted. So uh, there were many issues that were contested, mainly relating to jurisdiction. Uh, uh, and they were sort of resolved in a let's say, satisfactory manner to some, to some like myself, no. Um, the, um, uh, there was some discussion about individual conduct, of course, but about the scope of the leadership responsibility, opinions have been raised. However, there was no clear stance on it. So uh, the control I direct was a new standard, sort of replacing the shape or influence one from the Second World War. And uh, some delegations, uh, assumed and they suggested it's, it's in too narrow of a standard, it definitely um, uh, will infringe the customer international law and the Nuremberg precedents. And um, meaning that individuals from private sector uh, would be excluded from criminal responsibility. Then you have 2007, where uh, a friend of mine, Kevin John Heller, um, published an article, sort of inspired me to write my PhD thesis, well, one of the articles. Uh, so he argued 
that this standard completely retreats from Nuremberg legacy. And, uh, and he suggested that we should go back to shape or influence because if we keep uh, uh, control a direct or direct standard, uh, never could uh, third states complicit uh, nor uh, private individuals could meet the standard. So I'll, I'll come back to his argument in a moment, but this is what he said in 2007. And sort of as a response to that in 2009, it's very important. So the special working group for crime of aggression concluded the following. The view during the negotiation was also expressed that the language of the provision control of the direct was sufficiently broad to include persons with effective control over the political and military action of the state but who are not formally part of the relevant government, such as industrial. So I think this is, from my analysis, the most important sentence. So it doesn't say much. It doesn't say that, okay, we are definitely going to include in, within the uh, scope of criminal responsibility leaders from the private sector. But what is does not also say, very importantly, um, is that uh, they could never be prosecuted. Um, so the conclusion here is that my argument is that the customary status of the leadership clause, I make arguments about uh, customary status of the leadership clause in different places, uh, confirms that the crime of aggression has always considered both formal and civil sector leaders uh, within the purview of criminal responsibility. And crucially, there is nothing in the documents nor other sources of international law suggesting otherwise. So if someone uh, suggests an interpretation of the controller direct uh, arguing for um, a more narrow approach that will only uh, be focused on the uh, formal, let's say, political and military leadership of a state, that's all right. But if, if they say that this is what the, the document suggests, I, I don't think that's correct. I didn't find anything in the documents and I actually have been studying this for a while. I did actually talk with many people who were present during the conference and they were very, during the, uh, special, the work of the special working group of aggression, and they're very reluctant to say that the civil society leaders are uh, able to meet the standard and able to be prosecuted for complicity. But their reasoning was mainly the, uh, the sentiment during the, the, the conference. That's how they felt uh, when they were there. Uh, again, the focus was on jurisdictional issues, right? Uh, but their feeling with most of them with whom I spoke was that uh, civil society leaders could not be prosecuted. With the crime of aggression. So my, based on my conversations with them, is that they did not spend enough time uh, pondering about this issue. And there was this very influential article of Kevin John Heller, um, came out in 2007. It's sort of the opinion state that civil society leaders could not be prosecuted for complicity in a war of aggression. Uh, again, if you look at the documents, look at the law, there's nothing suggesting that. So that, that's very important. That's the big part of, of, of what I'm arguing uh, in, my, uh, in my theory of complexity. Okay, so that's, that's step number one. So we know something about the, uh, the leadership responsibility. So uh, now we turn to critique of control and direct. So there are a few scholars who were arguing in their articles and commentaries that um, the standard is too narrow, but I'll just like uh, mention two of them, Kevin John Heller and Kerry McDougall, because they, uh, I think they spent a little bit more time than others. Well, Kevin John Heller devoted uh, an, art, an entire article in 2007. And also he repeated this position in pr private emails, of course, co correspondence, but also in, in, in his latest article, well, 
article, which dates back two years ago, he said that nothing changed and he still thinks that essentially that's what he said, that uh, the um, um, control and direct cannot uh, encompass leaders outside of the uh, formal state leadership. Uh, I like his argument very much. I however disagree. I, I, I think that uh, his reading of the case law is very, very good. Uh, so he said that in Farben, the, the case that I just mentioned, uh, where uh, industrialists were prosecuted, the reasoning was the following. Um, the court considered their contribution to be but for condition sine qua non towards the formulation of the state policy or decisively they, the court considered their contribution to decisively influence the formulation of state policy. Uh, the court said they, their contribution of uh, uh, industrialists was indispensable to the realization of the aggressive policies. However, uh, since the normative appreciation of the Farben defendants was one of aiding and abetting, uh, Heller argues that they could never satisfy the new control or direct criteria. So Heller says that um, during the Second World War, industrialists were prosecuted based on shape or influence, uh, and they cannot meet control or direct. And his reasoning is, well, a uh, shape or influence means uh, uh, decisive influence towards the formulation of state policy. Uh, but control and direct is a higher standard. But he doesn't say why is it higher and how it actually can be higher than uh, decisive influence. He only says that because uh, industrialists, such as defendants of Farben, um, their role was one of aiding and abetting. And um, uh, because it's by nature complicity in a war of aggression, they could never meet the control or direct standard. That's his reasoning. Uh, Carrie McDougall said something very similarly. So she, in, according to her, to her, and she published that in, uh, uh, in her both volumes of the, of the book on the crime of aggression. So she argues something very similarly. And she says that if the crime of aggression should be reserved only to what she calls deciders. So those one who decide actually about the use of armed force. Um, so in short, Heller, Heller, McDougall, and others in their camp find control criteria as a lower threshold of the leadership clause, the higher is direct, I will argue that would be irreconcilable with aiding and abetting. So to think if someone aids and abet cannot control, that's the essence essential. Um, I, however, disagree with that. So I think that a, a person who aids in a bet can control. That's as simple as that. Um, so this is my this is my view. I defined uh, the uh, um, the definition of of control and direct in the final following matter. So uh, if you look at the definition, it says a control and direct relate. It relates to the state action. So, but but a person in a position to control or direct the state action. Um, so here is a little bit tricky. So I actually have an entire article and book chapter about this. So the state action, if you look at the definition of the crime of aggression, could mean two things. It could mean the use of armed force and it could mean the state conduct element. Um, from a criminal law perspective, this is extremely important because when we 
uh, attribute criminal responsibility, we need to decide what is the consequence of the crime. Murder means causing of death. Causing is the action of perpetration. Uh, death is a consequence. So I was wondering what's the consequence of the crime of aggression and uh, I didn't find anything actually in literature. So I, 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 I as I said, um, I have a book chapter on this and also an article arguing how uh, state action is to be understood, understood as the act of uh, use of armed force and also as the state conduct element, which is the particularly grave use of armed force, but particularly grave violation of the UN Charter. So uh, we essentially blame individuals for causing the use of armed force and also being aware of the overarching state act of aggression. So that's my argument in short. Um, but uh, maybe this is controversial to some of you and I'm very happy to discuss that in the Q&A afterwards. But this is what I conclude. So we have, if you look at the definition, we have the use of armed force. It's always every act of aggression is based on series of uh, instances of the use of armed force. Every single of them represent the consequence of the crime. So ultimately, we blame individuals for causing these single instances of the use of armed force while being aware of the overarching state uh, conduct element, which is the uh, manifest violation of the UN Charter. So if we accept that, and I, I'm arguing for that in my, in my book, then we can uh, reach the following uh, conclusion. So um, uh, state action is always an instance of the use of armed forms that forms a basis for the interpretation for the appreciation of the state conduct element. Therefore, control direct relates to use of armed force. Based on the analysis of customer international law, as I try to show, the leadership clause restricts criminal responsibility to policymakers. So it's always about policy. Um, if you look at the documents, if you look at the case law, it was always something about policymakers, persons to influence the uh, policy of a state. So therefore, in this context, I argue, control or I suggest, control or direct relates to the formulation of the state policy on the use of armed force. Control means decisive influence or but for toward the formulation of the state policy use of armed force. Direct, this is, I argue this very shortly, is essentially a higher level of, higher degree of control requiring some proactive behavior on the part of the uh, uh, perpetrator. So I use this analogy from the uh, state responsibility. So there we also had was like control direct discussion. What does it mean? So the discussion sort of was focused on control, and that's what I do in in, in my uh, in my article and my book. So uh, importantly, um, control means decisive influence or but for contribution towards the formulation of the state policy to use armed force. I. I, I I would say that Kevin John Heller agrees with this as well. Um, he mentions that uh, shape or influence uh, mean, well, he, he read uh, Farben and he said, this is what shape or influence means, indispensable contribution towards the formulation of state policy. But this is what I say about control also from the, from the, uh, from the new uh, leadership clause. Okay, so if we accept that, then we can work, uh, we can uh, apply this to the theory of complicity in international criminal law and show how is it how it is possible for individual uh, 
O's contribution was similar, uh, aiding and abetting how he is able to also control the state policy. So I'm coming that to that in a moment, but first I just want to say something about the control theory of the International Criminal Court. So uh, if you look at the control theory of the International Criminal Court, which sort of emerged, I believe, in 2007, um, um, it suggests it has a normative purpose to uh, um, ascribe perpetration to individuals who are not directly uh, committing international crime. So those would be the leaders of uh, states or non-state uh, actors who sort of set in motion the atrocities that eventually occur. If, they, um, if their control theory argues if their contribution was essential towards the commission of international crimes, then there's a plausible way to argue that they are perpetrators of crimes. So if you take this reasoning to control in the crime of aggression, then you will look at only individuals who are uh, essentially deciding about the act of aggression. So if you say that, okay, we should uh, apply uh, the interpretation from the International Criminal Court's control theory to control from uh, in the, the leadership clause, then you will reach conclusion that only perpetration is possible for the crime of aggression and only the top level of uh, individuals could meet the standard because they are the ones who are deciding. They are the ones who are providing indispensable, um, uh, essential uh, uh, contribution towards the instant, different instances of the use of armed force. Um, However, I think that uh, the normative purpose of uh, control from the leadership clause and control from control theory are two different uh, paradigms and they don't coincide. So one person could meet one standard without meeting the other and vice versa. So um, according to the control theory, control means that the perpetrator's conduct is constituent in the commission of the crime, whereas control in the leadership clause denotes decisive influence and indispensable but for contribution on the formulation of the state policy or decision to use armed force. So control theory means uh, if a conduct is constituent to the commission of crime, uh, then this person should be labeled as a perpetrator, right? Control from the leadership clause means if person uh, decisively or indispensably contributes to the formulation of a policy to use armed force, then this person should be regarded as a leader. Just to take this um, through an example, uh, so for instance, a pilot uh, may be in control of a particular act of commission of the use armed force, let's say bombardment, uh, but not the state policy to use armed force. Conversely, an industrialist may satisfy the leadership clause, especially if he has monopoly, uh, monopoly, if he holds monopoly on the market, by being in a position to decisively influence the formulation of the state policy to carry out the use of armed force, even though his conduct, which is essentially help or influence, uh, aiding and abetting, is not constituent to the commission of the act of use of armed force itself. Or the editor-in-chief, my favorite example, of a mainstream newspaper or media creates a necessary consent amongst the population that proved to be indispensable for the state to resort to armed force. Such media influence may have decisively helped the state to resort to violence, but the actual decision to use armed force was made by someone else. I feel like um, 
uh, editor-in-chief of the uh, poor media. Uh, there's plenty of examples, I'm going to go into it if you want, I will eventually. Um, um, they, their contribution towards the formulation of policies is decisive. It's uh, very important. They, they could have potentially a huge influence, especially in my, own, my country where I come from, Serbia. So they, can, they could have a huge influence towards the uh, uh, state policy and particular policy towards the use of armed force. However, if you look at the actual action of the uh, carrying out the uh, use of armed force, can't say that uh, their uh, contribution was constituent towards that. So that's something else. That's a control theory that, that defines what perpetration, what's not, okay? And the last point I'm gonna make concerns complicity. And if we sort of accept what I tried to explain so far, then we can argue that uh, someone like industrialist uh, may have decisive influence towards the formulation of a state policy in a way that I just described. Uh, the important factor for assessing his uh, complicit liability is to look at whether uh, he had uh, substantial uh, or just contribution towards the act of use of armed force. So it's not just enough to sort of be in position of control over the state policy, but also you need to contribute towards the actual act of commission of use of armed force. And this person has to have requirements there, which is a different uh, topic of discussion. So he has to be aware of his leadership position. He has to be aware of the state conduct element. He has to be uh, aware that his contribution will result in the, in the, uh, um, the act of uh, use of armed force. Okay, so that's everything I have uh, in my notes. So as I said, I apologize. It's a very like, I don't, um, I don't like giving lectures, difficult lectures over Zoom, <laughs> but this is how it is. Unfortunately, I'm stuck in Stockholm at the moment. I'm coming to Oxford very soon. Um, so I try to be more structured and, um, and clear in my, 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 my scholarship. So if you're interested, as I said, uh, I can, uh, well, the article is coming out very soon, but also uh, I have some documents uh, that, uh, well, I have some text from my book that sort of um, contributes to, to my arguments. Uh, but yeah, so that's it. So maybe we can start with the Q&A session. <laughs>